It's great to be home in Minnesota, and uh, as Pastor Doug said, this is our, our home district, our home base, where we do ministry out of, and it was a little emotional for me earlier today. I got to step foot into the worship center, which is just across the way there, and it brought back so many memories of when I was hurting, struggling, broken, and Jesus met me at those altars. He did works in me that no man could do, no counselor could do, only a move and divine sovereign act of God could do. And it's amazing to be here on the campgrounds and to think back in some of the moments. You know, when you look at scripture, you see man setting up altars as a reminder to remember what God did in their life. And this place, although it looks nothing like an altar, very much is like an altar in my mind when I come back to this place. And so I'm grateful for people who've had vision, who've heard from God to step forward and lead and uh, continue to see camp move forward and to see records break every year of students and the next generation. My wife and I, the reason why we do what we do is because scripture says in Psalm 71, even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me or depart from me, God, until I declare your power and your faithfulness to the next generation. There's an emphasis on seeing faith, life, the love of Jesus, the fullness of the Spirit being departed into the next generation. And this has served as an amazing place uh, to, to foster that and to do that. Uh, my wife and I, we, we live here in Minnesota in Egan. We're on staff at Zoe Church. And uh, just like you, maybe your life has been flipped upside down a little bit as, as well as ours. And uh, one of the things that I love to do when I travel and preach, especially in other states, is uh, especially in Wisconsin, I'll just say this. What I love to do in Wisconsin, my icebreaker, what I do to get everybody just so happy and excited that I'm there in their state is I have the whole church or every student put their hands out to the side like this, and I say on the count of three, I want you to clap above your head. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. And the whole audience has no idea that they just became Vikings fans. And I throw up a picture on the screen of Barr injuring Aaron Rodgers at the U.S. Bank Stadium. True story, I did this in the middle of Green Bay, a church right outside of Lambeau Field, Sunday morning. There are these grown men who are wearing Packers jerseys in the audience, okay? I'm getting them to do the skull clap, and after I throw up the Vikings picture, the whole church gets duped. These giant men stand up and be like, what are you doing showing that Viking stuff here? And I immediately thought I was going to die that day. I wouldn't return home to my family. Well, how'd he die? Some Packer fans got a hold of him and took care of him, you know. And I'm a big Vikings fan. And for any of those who follow the Vikings or you watch games, you know it's an emotional roller coaster to be a Vikings fan. In fact, I oftentimes lose the audience in the first two minutes because when they hear that I'm a Vikings fan, they think this is a delusional guy with the microphone. That's what they, that's what they think. And there's been some emotional moments growing up for me in games. I remember the 1998 game where we were, had an undefeated season and Cole Pepper was throwing the ball to Randy Moss and Chris Carter and some of the best receivers. And I remember sitting in the living room when Gary Anderson was lining up to kick the field. I'm sorry if this is resurrecting some emotion right now, but I remember watching it miss 
And the announcer just before that says, Gary Anderson's been perfect on the season. He's been amazing. It's like, why do you got to say that? Every time you say that, they miss. It's like, it's like Kevin Garnett at the free throw line, been perfect the whole game. Then he misses. It's like, why do you got to do that? And I remember the emotions of crying in the living room and my dad chucking the remote across the TV and just the anger in our home. I remember I have an uncle. He has a purple Vikings brick that when he's upset, that's the way he deals with his stress. He chucks this foam purple Vikings brick at the TV so the TV doesn't get hurt. He's found ways to cope with his stress. I remember a game recently where... We're playing the New Orleans Saints, and there's a lot of bad history with the New Orleans Saints club, but it was the most recent, or one of the most recent ones, where uh, we're up, and we're dominating the Saints. We're destroying them. Things are looking good. It's a playoff game. So much so that the crowd is erupting and doing the skull clap, and they're taunting Sean Payton, who's the head coach of the Saints. Fourth quarter hits. You never doubt Drew Brees. He's an amazing quarterback. Fourth quarter hits. Guess who starts leading a comeback? Guess who starts playing prevent defense? Which, by the way, this is a little rant. Prevent defense doesn't win championships. I'm sorry. You don't sit back. You go after the guy. So the Saints get back in the game. The Saints take the lead with hardly any time left. And what does the head coach of the New Orleans Saints have the audacity to do? Sean Payton himself does the skull clap to taunt the fans because the nail just got sealed in the coffin. And if you're a Vikings fan like me, you're watching the game, Case Keenum is your quarterback. I think there was 10 seconds left on third down. You're looking at the clock, you're seeing where the ball is on the yard line, and you're telling yourself, let's just turn this thing off. There's no way I've seen this before. This is going to end pretty bad. And then all of a sudden, the Minneapolis miracle takes place. And if you were like me, it was caught on video. I was jumping up and down, screaming, saying, we're going to the Super Bowl. We're going to. And the reason why I was so confident was because the Super Bowl that year was held in Minneapolis at U.S. Bank Stadium. Okay. And our opponent, the very next team we had to beat, was the backup quarterback, Nick Foles, of the Philadelphia Eagles. That was all we had to get by. And it had to have been destiny and fate that a Minneapolis miracle took place that was going to carry us into the championship. And now, seeing that game on replays, because it was an amazing game, you'll see that game often played, replayed on NFL Network or other channels. And now, when I watch that game back, and I am rewinding and I'm replaying the game, the emotions aren't nearly as much because why? Because I know the outcome. I know the ending. And I think so many of us forget in our life that we actually really truly do know the ending to all of this. That we actually do know the outcome. And yet so many of us can be tempted to live in a way where we completely forget the outcome of the game. And what is the outcome that we've been told through Scripture? Is that, guess what? There were over 300 verses in Scripture that talk about Jesus coming. 100 verses predicted the first time he came. 200 verses predicted the second time he's coming again. We know who gets the final say, and we know who wins in the end. We know the outcome of what's going to take place. We know the final victory that's set up for the last stages. You know, what's really interesting 
is Jesus actually spends a lot of time speaking about his second return. So much so that Jesus spends his longest recorded answer that he ever gives to any question in the Bible, he actually spends the most time ever giving a response to the question the disciples ask in Matthew 24 when they say, when will the end come? Do you realize the longest answer he ever gives in Scripture to any question is about his coming again, his second coming, him coming a second time? And here's the deal. Um, it's not a question of if he's going to come, but when he's going to come. Scripture has pro proven itself over and over, prophecies from years being fulfilled. He's going to come back a second time. And where I want to lead you tonight are three questions that will be asked of us when he comes back a second time. I want to lead you tonight to three questions that we need to ask ourselves right now that has everything to do with when Jesus comes back a second time. Uh, this is not a message that I've ever preached anywhere else. There are parts of this message that I have preached before, but there are three things and there are three passages that I have not been able to shake for this very season that we're in right now. Three passages that I feel like if it's just for me, if it's just for me personally, then I'll stay there. And this is where I need to be, and this is where I want to be. So tonight, real quickly, we're going to look at three passages, and there's going to be three questions that I'm going to ask us tonight that we need to be asking ourselves. With each question I give you, there's going to be a challenge associated to it. Before I present the questions, you need to see the realities and the proof of Scripture. Jesus gave a list of what was gonna happen before he came back. He associated it to a woman in labor. I will never know what it's like to be in labor, and I am very thankful I will never know what it's like to be in labor. I, I, I just am, okay? But Jesus relates it to like this, and if you've had experienced labor before in the past, you know that when you're in labor, the pains increase and it get worse. It intensifies, and Jesus equates to his second coming to that of a woman being pregnant, and that these signs that I'm going to give you, they're going to get intense. It's going to grow more. They're not going to shrink back. It's actually going to be more intense. In Matthew 24, he gives a list of signs. Number one is that there will be false world religions, and it's going to be people saying, hey, I'm God, or hey, this is the way. It's going to be world religions looking for attention for people. More and more are saying that this is the way. No, this is the way. Number two, there's going to be an increase of wars. Wars are going to increase prior to the time of Christ. This is crazy. Prior to the time of Jesus walking the earth, there was 70 known wars. Following the time of Christ, for the next 1,000 years, there were 50 wars. In the next 500 years after that, there were 100 wars. In the next 300 years after that, there were 250 wars. In the last 200 years, okay, get this. Just the last 200 years, there have been over 500 wars. The signs that Jesus gives are intensifying. They're not dwindling. Number three, famines. He talks about famines in Matthew 24, verse 7. It says one of the concerns is that we might outgrow by 2050 with the ability to produce food for about 10 billion people. 
They're anticipating, experts are, about 10, 10 billion people in 2050, and there's talk about the effects of climate change, talks about the effect of how things are changing biologically in the plant world, and scientists are beginning to question, can we actually sustain? Number four, pestilences and fearful events. Y'all, this is crazy. I preached this back in the fall. Listen to the words that are about to come out of my mouth, and you tell me if this happened or not. Reach MD. Okay, this is in the fall of last year. ReachMD says epidemiologists and healthcare professionals believe it is a case of when and not if the world is hit by a global epidemic of deadly infectious disease killing millions of people. That as we go through time, we are going to see more and more of that and all of science, all of technology are admitting that they cannot stop it from happening. Imagine a worldwide pandemic that kills millions of people. It is all pointing to the return of Christ. The world is not going to get better and better and we will not manage our way scientifically or technologically out of the disasters. Why? Jesus said it. He said it. Number five, earthquakes. There's 500,000 earthquakes that happen every year. And it's just that you and I, we don't feel them. We're aware of them. Number six, persecution of Christians. There are more people persecuted for their faith in Jesus today than ever before. Do you realize that in the last century, more people were martyred in their faith than all the previous centuries combined? More people in the last century were killed for believing in Christ than all the previous centuries combined before that. Right now, people are dying for their faith. In fact, one in three Christians face high levels of persecution in Asia, with India now entering in the top 10 for the first time. And Open Doors estimates that 245 million Christians face high levels of persecution this year, up from 250 million Christians last year, increasing of over 30 million believers. Number seven, the love of many would grow cold and there would be a falling away of Jesus. That people will begin to lose glimpse of who Jesus is and begin to fall away. And the last sign Jesus speaks of is the gospel will be preached to the world. The single most significant of all the signs listed might probably be that when the gospel is preached to every tribe and tongue, then, then the end will come. Guys, this is crazy. The Washington uh, VP, DC, the VP of the Washington Bible Museum has said this, that by 2030, every known lang language to man will have the gospel translated in its native tongue. Every language on the earth ever spoken by man, fully translated with the gospel by 2030. We are here. The signs have not decreased. The signs have increased. If what Jesus said 2,000 years ago is going to happen, there are three questions we have got to be able to answer. And number one, the first question is this, is when Christ returns, will he find faith in you? Will he find faith in you? The first passage that I can't shake, that I can't get out of my heart and out of my head, is in Luke chapter 18. And when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he starts off the parable by saying this in Luke 18. He says, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that why, listen to this right here, that they should always pray and not give up. 
So before he even goes into the story, he says, I'm going to teach you that you should always pray and never give up. And then he gives the story of a widow who goes before an unjust judge and she's persistent. She won't stop asking the judge. She won't stop meeting him. Jesus uses this story to equate what the end times will be like. And Jesus goes on to say this. Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? In verse 8, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Here's the kicker right here. This is the big kicker of the whole story. However, this is crazy. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When Jesus comes back a second time, when he looks at our life, when he encounters you and finds you, will he find faith in you? And what kind of faith does he equate that to? What he says in the very beginning of the parable, I am going to teach you what it means to pray and not give up. Two qualities that are going to be needed to endure to the end to when he comes back is going to be a life that's filled with prayer and a life that's filled with endurance, perseverance. There's this aspect of continuing on. There's this aspect of grit here. And it's not going to be this out of a human flesh kind of grit or power. It's going to be a power from the Holy Spirit. It's going to be this Greek word, energeo. It's his energy at work within you. It's his energy to see it through to completion. But it's going to be backed by two things, prayer and not giving up. And when Christ comes back, will he find a praying believer? When he comes for the second time, will he see people who knows how to pray and seek his face? When he comes back to find his church, will he find his church as a praying church? Will he find as a church that perseveres? Jesus says it another way in the Gospel of Matthew when he says, those who persevere to the end will be saved. Will he find faith in you? Let me ask you a simple question. What are you believing for in your life? Without faith, we cannot please God. God is pleased when the aroma of prayer and faith is like an incense, a sweet-smelling fragrance to him. It's like my little girl coming up to me and she goes, Daddy, I want to spend time with you. Daddy, you're home. It does something inside of the heart of a dad when a young girl comes up and says, Daddy, you're here. How much more does God desire the praises, the prayers of his children who are like a persistent widow, maybe not have much in the world's eyes, but is rich like Hannah who can't wait to see Jesus and see the Messiah. This life of prayer, oftentimes, you can reveal your faith by what you pray. What are you praying for? When was the last time you asked for the impossible? I don't know about you, but I have tons of impossibilities surrounding me. I have a next-door neighbor of a young woman by her name, Brittany. I've been praying for her healing for over two years now since I've been her neighbor. She knows I pray for her. I message that I pray for her. Just yesterday, she had to go to the ambulance. She was at home by herself. She has this skin disease, and then it impacts her health, her physical health. I'm not going to stop praying and believing and having faith for this girl to get healed or to be set free from her condition. What child, what grandchild has maybe walked away from God? I don't know about you, but as the body of Christ, 
We're called to rise up for one another, to believe with one another, to agree together. I'm a part of a, a group that meets, and I had a mom who texted me. She said, Micah, would you please pray for my son? This son of hers was in my youth group. She goes, Micah, he's walking away from God. He doesn't really believe in Jesus anymore. Micah, I'm just trying to find people who will call on the name of Jesus, have faith in their bones, and like a persistent widow, pray for my son to come back to know Jesus. Do you know anybody in your life like that that's walked away? Do you know a child or a grandchild? Let me ask this. Do you know somebody else's child or grandchild that's wrestling? And so I said, you know what? I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. So I began praying for this young man. About three months later, I, I get a text from the mom saying, Micah, you're not going to believe it. My son was in church. And in the middle of worship, he begins to break down and cry. I said, well, why? What's going on? She said he encountered Christ in the middle of worship. Wasn't worshiping Jesus before. But the presence of God hit him. And on the drive home, he said, Mom, I believe in God again. Because I just encountered him. What does it look like to have a prayer life, to begin to believe for impossible things, to see God's kingdom come on this earth? The question he's going to look for is, will he find faith on the earth? A faith that moves him, and it's going to be backed by a perseverance that will not throw on the towel and backed by a life of prayer that won't stop asking. Number two, the next question he's going to ask is will he know you? I didn't ask if you knew him. I'm asking, will he actually know you? And you're sitting there right now being like, God is omniscient. Of course he'll know me. No. Will he actually know you as a disciple? Not someone who believed in him at one point, and you're just kind of good with life. Will he actually know you? Can I just tell you the scariest thing I believe Jesus ever says out of his mouth is when he says, truly I tell you, I do not know you. That freaks me out. Because when Jesus says that, he shares a parable just after Matthew 24, Matthew 25, of 10 virgins they all look the same. They all socially have their lanterns. They're supposed to go to the wedding party. Five of them have their lanterns lit. Five of them run out of oil. They look the same. They maybe all went to church together. You couldn't really tell a difference on the outside, but in the inside, five were wise, and on the, out, on the inside, five were foolish. Five owned their faith. Five made their faith a priority. Five invested into the kingdom. Five were foolish, did not have their lamps lit. And could it be that 50% of our churches in America, Jesus might look at the people in them and say, I don't know you. Could it be? And then Jesus goes on to say about how the world will actually know that you're really mine. Number one is he said, the world's going to know by the way you love one another. You know what breaks my heart? is the disunity in the church right now. The hatred, the division, the disunity. And what is the enemy's tactic to use to try to destroy the work of God? Because when the church of God is united, he commands blessing. It displays the glory of God to the world. And if the enemy can get the church to disagree, to bring disunity, to bring division, 
and I'm watching it all over the place. People in my very own church that I attend arguing, bickering, complaining, hurting one another. You want to know what complaining and arguing does? It is a grievous sin against God. Because you want to know what complaining does? It tells God this, I don't trust you. That's what complaining does. And I'm watching it sweep across the church. I'm watching it try to bring division. And Jesus said this, the world's going to know it. The world's going to know that you know me and I know you by the way you love one another. Maybe your greatest takeaway is to freely forgive because it never ends. And it's what we actually need towards our brother and sisters in Christ right now. To love one another. Not only did Jesus say that the world would know your mind by the way you love one another, but in Matthew 5, 16, he says, let your light shine. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to follow me, you're naturally going to shine. And your good deeds in your life, it's going to display something that's beyond you, and it's going to bring glory to my name. It's going to glorify who I am. As a follower of Christ, you were made to stand out. You were made to be seen in a way that's helpful, in a way that's life-giving. I've been doing some weird things lately, okay? I think the reason why is because I'm in quarantine, and I'm a people person. And when I'm not around people, I go crazy. I get a little psycho. Like, I'm not joking. You can ask my wife. We go on walks in our neighborhood. Every person that I see, I will wave to like this. And I'll be a big smile. And oftentimes they look at me like, me, me? You're waving at me? Like, I don't, me? Yeah, you. I'm saying hi to you. Every person, I'll be in my car. I do this all the time. Wave to someone. I was at Alexandria Caribou this morning. I was inside the store ordering a coffee. A 70-year-old lady in her car was in the drive-thru. I purposely stood right in an area that I could look through the drive-thru window at the customer. 70-year-old grandma. Worker moves out of the way. I smile. She goes, me? The worker comes back. This grandma tells the worker to get out of the way. She said, get out of the way. And the worker's like, what's going on? She goes, I'm trying to look at that guy. So the worker gets out of the way. She goes, were you waving to me? I said, yeah. She goes, why? I said, I just wanted to say hi. You know, just have a great day. Every drive through person that came through, I said, have a great day and hi, through the window. The workers thought I was crazy, but it brought a smile to someone's face. Know what it communicates? I see you. I see you. People need to be seen. They want to be seen. Know what I do for a side hustle to get some extra revenue? I do something called DoorDash. Know what that is? It's a delivery service where you deliver food. Guess what? I go up to doors. Sometimes it says leave at the door because they don't want to see me because of COVID. I get it. That's no problem. But some people say hand it to me. And I'm like, oh, I see someone. But know what breaks my heart is these people who I deliver to, they open the door and they are so hungry to like connect. And they're lonely and they're isolated. Christ said, let your light shine. Let your good works be seen. Why? 
because it would point back to who Jesus is. The best is when someone says, why are you the way you are? And you get to tell them about the love of Jesus in your life and how awesome God is. Will Jesus actually know you? The question is not, do I know Jesus? The question is, is does he know you? And how Jesus equates this is when was the last time in Matthew 25, this is how he equates it. He says, the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Listen, this is crazy. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came up to visit me. Do you realize Jesus equates the knowing of him and him knowing you by what? Your good deeds. Right here. When was the last time you fed someone? When was the last time you clothed someone? When was the last time you gave someone a drink? My wife and I, we sponsor a child in Myanmar, Burma. We pay for him to have education and to eat and to have food and clothes. But know what's amazing? Is living your life in such a way that it activates faith that will help the people in the world, whether you ever meet him or not. We've never got to meet Biek. Biek is his name. But one of the greatest times in my life was when my wife and I gave sacrificially to build clean water wells in Africa. And we sacrificed so much, I'm not gonna tell you the amount, but our savings literally went down to zero. And at the dinner table that night, when I bowed my head to pray for the food with our kids, I couldn't help but well up with emotion, knowing that my savings was zero, but that kids in Africa might have a chance to hear the gospel and might actually have a cup of cold water. It was like my faith became real. Our life was meant to be what we see in our next point when Paul says, Apollos, Paul? Are you kidding me? Do you realize all we are are servants of Jesus Christ? That's it. That is all we are. In other words, what he's trying to say, all we do is we look to give our life away. Do you realize we're homeless? Do you realize we don't have a place to lay our head? Do you realize I've stopped making my life about comfort a long time ago? Because nothing compares to the price and cost of knowing who Jesus is. So I make it my goal to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. If I could sum up my life at the end of my life and say this, whether I had plenty or whether I had little, whether I was rich or I was poor, I have found the secret of being content in the Lord. I have found what it means to live for Jesus and to know Christ. The questions he's going to ask you is, will he find faith on the earth when he comes? Number two, will he know you? And the third question is, will your life pass the fire test? Will your life pass the fire test? I can't get away from Luke 18 and the prayer of a persistent widow. I can't shake Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 right here and right now. 
but I also can't shake on will my life actually pass the test of his fire. In Malachi chapter 3, the people of Israel becoming disgruntled. God, when are you going to show up? Don't you see the injustices happening to us? Don't you see what's going on? Where's our justice, God? Don't you see we're fasting and praying? Don't you see the sackcloth? Aren't you going to show up? You're supposed to show up. And Jesus is prophesied about by the prophet Malachi and says, oh, there's justice coming all right. And he's going to be like a refiner's fire when he comes. Who was it prophesying about? Jesus. The fulfillment to the question, the answer they were looking for was going to be found in the life of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's trying to direct the church. Their church is arguing about Apollos and Paul. Who did this for you? Was it Paul that led you to Christ? Was it Apollos that baptized you? And it's like they're elevating the status of men above Jesus. And Paul writes to them to correct them. How dare you honor a man? Do you understand what man is? Man is not Christ. Man has a fallen nature. Man will mess up. Man will fail you. Man will let you down. Man will lead you astray. Man might deceive you. Let me point you to something that's way greater than man. By the grace God has given me, Paul writes, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hair, straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because, end times, the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. God, let my life be all about the eternal, and may I forget the temporal. From here on out, whether you die or whether Christ comes back, there will be a fight over your life for eternal things or temporal things. Only you and I can decide. And at the end, the great judge himself will reveal and test every person's work. Will it be burned up like straw and hay and disappear? Or will it stand the test of time because young men or men or women in this room, very room, decided to build their life on the foundation of Jesus Christ, decided to attach their life, give their life, surrender their life over to Christ, to say, God, from this day forward, my life is marked as a bond servant, as a servant of Jesus Christ. I will anchor, tie myself to you, and let you test me. Let you refine me. Refining hurts. It doesn't feel good. The fire stinks. It doesn't feel good. Refire will burn you, but it burns you to bring glory into the image of Christ and who he's called you to become. We all need the refiner's fire in our life. Will your life pass the fire test? Or will it all burn up and go away? And maybe the only reward is that of just mere salvation. But how much greater to live a life, like Paul said, not to get by, but to win. To win. 
we were called to set up to win, to let go of the temporal and start living for the eternal, to start having a faith that perseveres and doesn't give up, to start praying in a way that looks different. I was sitting right here in this very room three weeks ago, and a man got the microphone and said, I want everyone to bow their head, and I believe the Holy Spirit's going to show you something new for your life, something new for your ministry. God's going to speak to you, and you're going to lead through it. And as I'm sitting there, I'm expecting some great revelation or maybe some new speaking opportunities. And I just feel like God say, Micah, want to know what's new for you? You want to know what I want for you? Every morning, I want you to wake up, spend time in my presence. Pray. Pray. Don't ever give up. Seek my face in the mornings. Then the new, the new I want to do in you, you never have to concern yourself with because I will be the one who gives it. I will be the one who does it. I will bring new wine because I created and had time to put a new wine skin in your heart. When I return, will I find faith in you, Micah? Will I find faith in your life? What are you believing for? God, keep me from the temporal to live for the eternal. Build your life upon Christ, and a life built on Christ will be sure to pass the fire test. I have had some great people to look up to in my life and watch and model, and truly they would be the first ones to tell you that it wasn't them, but like Paul says, it's not about Apollos or Paul. We're here today, gone tomorrow. But it's about a foundation being built on Jesus. And I had a grandpa on my mom's side who loved Jesus with all of his heart. He always quoted the verse, blessed is a man who has a quiverful. My grandpa had eight children, my mom being one of them. And it was the best because I would watch my grandpa come out into the living room and just kind of lean up against a wall. And he would just have the biggest smile and he would just delight in looking at his children, looking at his grandchildren. He would pray, God, let every child of mine, let every grandchild of mine, may they follow you, Jesus. May they give their life to you. May they, may they know you. May they fall more in love with you. God, keep them when they sin. God, keep them when they turn their back on you. God, keep them when they want to go to the wayside. This was a man who had his own imperfections, but he knew the perfection of Christ and what it could do in a family's life. This is powerful. Over every child and grandchild before he died with pancreatic cancer, he wrote a note card with a verse and he prayed and put his hands on each child of his and each grandchild and departed faith into them. Life, the word into them to hold on to Jesus, to live for Christ. And he said before he passed, I wish it never would have taken pancreatic cancer to tell people about Jesus. I wish I wouldn't have waited to tell nurses, people I meet about the goodness and love of Jesus. Don't wait for you to be on your deathbed to make Christ known. Make Christ known right now. Live for him now. And I think about the greatest legacy my grandpa ever left. It wasn't wealth, although we got some of that. It wasn't even each other, although we still have that. The greatest legacy he ever left 
was opening his Bible and being a man of the word, was knowing what it means to pray and persevere, that yes, hardships will come. Yes, sin might come. I'm not perfect, but I will not give up in following Jesus. I will not stop in praying for those in my family and those around. Some of you have family here. Some of you have kids here or grandkids here. Keep praying for them. Keep believing for them. Keep praying a hedge around them. Some of you tonight didn't know this, but if you were to ask where your faith was at, maybe you'd find yourself more in a similar spot that says, God, help me with my unbelief right now. And that's okay to be there. Just be honest with them. Do you realize God can actually create in you a desire to seek him? He can give you that ability and that power to pursue him. You just need to ask. Some of you need to get your faith reignited. Where does it come? Get close to the fire. Get close to the refiner's fire. Some of you need to put yourself in a spot where he can know you again, speak to you again. Or maybe it's just asking yourself the question, what's in my life right now? That if Christ came back and put it through the fire, it would completely be utterly meaningless. And what do I need to change so that if the fire comes, it will stand? Christ wants to meet with you and speak to you. I'm not going to tell you to come to the altar tonight, but I'm going to have my wife lead some songs and Pastor Doug will come when it's time to maybe give a soft dismissal. But I want you to spend some time in the presence of Jesus tonight. I want you to spend some time to hear his voice. Maybe it's saying, God, what new thing do you want to do in me? What temporal thing are you been wanting to get rid of or destroy in my life? God, what's the most eternal thing I can do right now? Oh, how awesome is it that we have a Savior who was given to us out of love, that his whole motivation was love that we are undeserving, not worthy of being treated the way he treats us, yet he treats us better than our sins tell us what we deserve. We were deserving of wrath, but Christ in his great mercy and faithfulness came and chose to love us through the mess to lead us to become children of God, that we might shine as bright as the stars in the sky, that we might be a people who will stand in God's presence and illuminate his glory to reflect him so the world might see Jesus. But oh, it comes back to the gospel with how great God is and how wretched man is that God would take something so wretched and make it pure again, that God would take something so broken and make it found again, that God would... Do a work that you and I could never do. Friends, don't ever forget the gospel. Remind yourself daily of how rich you are in him and how much he loves you. It begs us to leave us into a spot and position of one that only requires one act, repentance. Change my heart, oh God. I confess my sins. I turn from my wicked ways. God... Help me to pray and seek your face again. Help me to be humble, stay humble. Expose the areas in my life that need exposing. And help me, God, to follow you and to see a healing in this land. Jesus, we give you this night and 
our hearts, and you've already been working in people's lives, hearts, minds, and you're so faithful, God. And so we recognize that, and we respond to your faithfulness. We respond to who you are and the word that was preached. The three questions that are going to be asked. Will he find faith? Will he know us? And will our life pass the fire test? By the grace of God, may it be said of every one of us in the room, yes, yes, and yes. Feel free to respond tonight. Steph's going to lead. If you want to find a place in the room to go pray, you're welcome to do that. If you want to come to the altar, you're welcome to do that. If you want to respond in your seat, you're welcome to do that. But just be obedient to whatever God puts in your heart to do.